Uh, Well, this morning we are going to be spending time in Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. This is part of a series we've been uh, doing where we're working our way through some of the the parables that Jesus told. And we're not going to get to all his parables, but we're just kind of hitting a few here and there that I felt led to. And uh, this one that we're going to be spending time in this morning, again, Luke 7, verses 36 through 50, is a bit of an unusual encounter that Jesus has um, in the Bible. We talked about this a couple weeks ago when we talked about the prodigal son. In the parable of the prodigal son, Jesus had some tender words for a very, a group of very hard men, these Pharisees. And normally when Jesus and the Pharisees interact, it's a it's a, it's a contentious exchange for the most part. Sometimes Jesus will even use language that, frankly, I have a hard time seeing myself ever using, where he would actually call these men names, like you brood of vipers, you whitewashed tombs, hypocrites, uh, really letting them have it. Um, but occasionally, we have these interactions between Jesus and the Pharisees that don't take that tone. And this is one of those occasions. Uh, You can follow along with me. We're going to be, I'm not going to read the whole thing in one stretch. We're going to kind of read a little bit, talk about what we see there, and then move on. And I have a few points of application at the end. Jesus is going to wrap this exchange up with a parable. Beginning at verse 36, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner... When she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. Let's just pause right here for a second. Uh, Here's the scenario. This Pharisee, who we're going to learn his name is Simon, he invites Jesus to his home. And one of the questions that immediately pops into my mind is why? Why does he do this? And just to be perfectly upfront, the Bible doesn't tell us. Anything I would offer would be speculation. Um, But there is some speculation to offer here. Uh, It's surprising, though, because Jesus and the Pharisees don't usually see eye to eye. And at this point in Jesus' ministry, there have been multiple public dust-ups between the Pharisees and Jesus. Uh, These two groups, well, the group of the Pharisees and the person of Jesus have had some spectacular public, I don't know how to describe, I guess dust-ups, you know, this, the, the people have seen them arguing. It's clear there's, the Pharisees don't like this guy very much. So here a Pharisee invites Jesus to his house. I think maybe Simon, we're going to get in verse 39, he's going to, in his own, we're, we're given access to Simon's own inner monologue. He's going to see this woman who is a sinner actually touching Jesus, and he's going to think to himself, well, if he is a prophet of God, he would know what kind of person is touching him. Now, I think that at least raises the possibility that in Simon's mind, he's been looking on Jesus and seeing at a minimum, he's beginning to think that maybe what is happening through Jesus, his teaching, his miracle working, maybe this is of God. Maybe he's a prophet. So I think that his heart is tipping towards appreciating Jesus. I think he is beginning to think that Jesus is at least sent of God, 
a servant of God, because he has it in his mind that maybe he's a prophet. But then he's brought to question that by what plays out in his house, which we'll get to in a minute. So I think he's curious about Jesus. Uh, There are many times in the Gospels where the Pharisees seek to set a trap for Jesus. I'm speculating. I hate to do that as a Bible teacher. It's dangerous. You don't care about my opinion. You care what God's Word says. I'm speculating here, but I don't think Simon is doing that. I think he's curious about this man, Jesus. Jesus is a controversial teacher. He's a healer. He's a worker of miracles. Jesus is a well-known and intriguing figure by this time. Everyone was talking about him. He was front-page news. So maybe Simon invited him over to his house to get a look at him for himself. Maybe what motivated this man, Simon, to invite Jesus to his house was not so different from why Zacchaeus climbed the tree. He just kind of wants to get a better look at him. I think, again, we can infer from what he says in verse 39 that his thinking about Jesus has come to the point where he really does think maybe something of God is happening here. Now, the Bible is sometimes difficult for 21st century Americans to read because it was written a long time ago and within a cultural context that is foreign to us. Sometimes in our study of the Bible, we encounter customs and cultural expectations that are foreign to us. So here's a piece of information that will help us understand this story better. In those days and in that culture, standard hospitality required that when a guest came to your home, you would greet them with a kiss, sort of like our handshake, you know, and two men meet, they, they shake. That's what we do in our culture. In that culture, they had a different practice, a different expectation. You would greet a person with a kiss. You would also provide water for their feet to be cleaned. They come into your house, their feet are dusty from the street. It was standard hospitality that you would do that. And if you were a wealthy person or some, of some status, you might have household servants you would actually give them, you wouldn't just provide water for that to happen, you would actually have them or a lower-ranking member of your household do the honors of washing your visitors' feet. And you would anoint their head with oil. This is a, in that culture at that time, this is a, a demonstration of acceptance. You know, in Psalm 23, where it's the psalmist David says, you anoint my head with oil. That is a profoundly powerful statement in that culture at that time because he's saying to God, you accept me. And so when someone came into your house and you anointed their head with oil, it was a sign of blessing and acceptance. You belong here in my house. I'm glad you're here. Now, all three might sound a little strange to us living as we do in these days in this culture in America, but it's well documented that this was the custom of that culture in those days. Simon does none of these things for Jesus. (laughs) He doesn't shake his hand, doesn't offer to take his coat, doesn't get him something to drink, doesn't do any of the standard stuff we might do. In that culture, he just has them come in and sit down and they start talking. And again, we're not sure why exactly. Uh, It's possible, you know, there are like these, even in our culture, there's these gradations of get-togethers, right? Like you might start all the way on the lowest end of the spectrum where I just bumped into them at Martin's. 
That's pretty cash, <laughs> right? And then, like, I know this as pastor. Sometimes I line up get-togethers with people during the week just because I want to be with you guys and get to know you better, things like that. And so I might say, hey, let's come over to my house for dinner. Oh, I can't do it. Oh, okay, that won't work. Let's just grab coffee sometime. Now, one of those is a bigger commitment, right? It's a set date and time. You come into my house, and I got to clean my house and beat my children so they comply. <laughs> it's a whole big production. But if I just meet you for coffee, that's a lot more casual, right? That's, a, that's not as big a deal. And so I think here, Simon is just kind of treating this as pretty casual. This is no big deal. Um, that's, again, dangerous work, speculation. What do I know? I don't understand my own culture very well, but I certainly don't understand this one. But I do think it's possible that given the fact that there is such public, well-known animosity between his group and Jesus, that he may not have wanted to make a big production of having Jesus over at his house. If he had anointed Jesus' head with oil as a show of acceptance, I accept you, that would have been controversial in, in his group, the Pharisees, perhaps. And if he had made a big production of having over to his house, wouldn't that have looked like an endorsement of Jesus and all his teachings and the things he had said? And so I think this is just kind of on the down low. Let's not make a big deal out of it. Come over, have a seat, we'll talk, but all of the normal pleasantries are tossed right out the window because they're laden with meaning and significance in that culture that would have been problematic for Simon. That's my own personal read. But word gets out that Jesus is reclining at table in Simon's house. And unexpectedly, a woman of the city who the Bible describes as a sinner unexpectedly crashes the party. Uh, the Bible simply says she was a sinner. I'm going to get back to this in just a second. But I think we're on good grounds understanding from other scriptural texts and understanding of the way this word was used in the Bible and other occasions, that this is probably code for the fact that she made her living as a prostitute. This is the most likely reading. It's not definitive, but it's the most likely. I know she's been dead for thousands of years. I don't want to cast aspersions on her character or mischaracterize her, but I think that's the most likely interpretation of describing her here as a sinner. It's a euphemism for how she made her living, and it was scandalous. And this was not part of Simon's plan. <laughs> Simon had Jesus come over, but this woman was definitely not on the guest list. She's not invited. And this dinner is about to get pretty awkward. A quick point of clarification, though. When the Bible describes the woman as a sinner, you might think, but doesn't Romans 3.23 say, for all have sinned and fallen short of the gl glory of God? I mean, aren't we all sinners? Well, of course, uh, of course, that's true. By calling this woman a sinner, Luke is not saying that some people are sinners like this woman and others are not. The description of this woman as a sinner uh, probably means that she was particularly no no notorious in that community for a sinful mode of living. She was really an infamous sinner is the best reading here. 
And that's probably, again, most likely linked to her profession. And although the Bible doesn't state precisely what her sins were, the impression we're given is that her transgressions were serious, numerous, and well-known to everyone in that place. So the scene is set. This is the context. At this dinner, on either side of Jesus, we have an infamous lawbreaker and a man who was famous in that culture for his law-keeping. And it's shocking, absolutely shocking, that this woman would come to the house of a Pharisee at all. In ordinary times, Simon and this woman would have absolutely nothing to do with one another. He would not go near someone like her, and she would not go near someone like him. Yet strangely, they are thrown together for the same purpose. They both want to spend time with Jesus. So let's continue reading. This woman, uh, just to revisit, they're reclining at table. This woman enters, unannounced, uninvited, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, She began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, earlier I mentioned that we sometimes have difficulty understanding ancient customs and practices described in the Bible. In fact, there are so many strange goings on that it can become difficult for us to recognize when something truly out of place and strange is happening. So I want you to know What this woman is doing is not some ancient custom or practice. In every culture, in every age, what is happening at this dinner party would be considered very weird, strange, not normal. I want you to try and imagine with me what it would have been like in the room. This notorious, infamous woman shows up uninvited and unwelcomed into the home of a Pharisee. This would be enemy turf for her. I think sometimes it's intimidating for people to come to church, a new church, for the first time. And of course it is, because they imagine that they would be unwelcome, perhaps, or something like that. They don't yet understand or haven't grown to know us and get comfortable with us, perhaps. This woman knows for a fact, and she's not wrong, that she is not welcome. This is absolutely enemy turf, and it's not owing to some misunderstanding on her part. She is not welcome here. This man disapproves of her and doesn't want her there, but yet here she is. Everyone is wondering what she's doing there. What's her business with Jesus? I imagine it got quiet. Have you ever been in a group and something starts to happen and everybody just kind of goes, <laughs> what is happening? It gets quiet. It's awkward. Guys, I think that, I don't know. Again, I'm speculating. Dangerous thing to do. But I think it probably got a little awkward. And then out of the silence comes the sound of her sobbing. She's crying. And then there's the splashing of ointment, the smell of which would have filled the air as she anoints his feet. And everyone present is watching the unusual display of this woman bathing Jesus' feet with her tears and washing them with her hair. 
That's the most noble part of a woman's body in that culture. And the foot is the most lowly, ignoble part. She's saying, my hair, your rag. I'm lower than you. This is an act of incredible, humble worship. And though her hair has fallen forward, partially obscuring our view, it's clear that she is kissing his feet. Why is she doing this? With these three extraordinary signs of love and affection toward Jesus, she's just saying, thank you. She's worshiping. But what is she thankful for exactly? What has Jesus done for her? I think that will become clear in a moment, but for now, let's continue reading. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him, for she is a sinner. So again, apparently from Simon's own inner monologue, it's clear that he's seen enough of Jesus, he's heard enough about Jesus that he's privately begun to wonder if he might be sent by God. Maybe he's a prophet like Elijah in the Old Testament. And this reveals that perhaps, unlike many Pharisees, Simon is open-minded to Jesus. He's not entirely opposed to him. He's on the fence. And maybe that, again, is why he's invited him to his house to begin with. Up until this point, he has remained open to the possibility that might, Jesus might be a prophet or something. Of course, Jesus is much more than a prophet, somebody who speaks for God. Although Simon doesn't know it, guys, he has invited God himself to dinner at his house. He's invited I am, the one who before Abraham was I am. He's invited the Almighty, the creator of the world, into his home for dinner. But he thinks that surely if he was a prophet, somebody who had been given supernatural insights from God, God would have alerted him to what kind of person this was who was touching him. And this is an important thing to know. I think this is, again, a cultural thing that we lose, living as we do as New Testament believers. But to the Pharisees, sin was not just something you did. It was something you could contract like a disease. If you touched a sinful person... Or even if you touched an object that a sinful person had handled, you could bring their sinfulness onto yourself through having contact with them. This is why they're corrected elsewhere in scriptures by saying sin is not something you put into your body. It's something that proceeds from the corruption in your inner person. This is why many times in the New Testament we have Jesus, for example, in Mark uh, he is instructing the Pharisees about how they ritually clean themselves whenever they come into the home from the marketplace. What they're doing by ritually cleaning, this is not about hygiene. This is about washing away spiritually all the cooties that they may have come into contact with out there. And so this woman who is a famous sinner, she's absolutely covered in sin cooties. <laughs> That's not from the original Greek. I made that up. But... She's actually touching Jesus. And to Pharisee, coming from his tradition, this is gross. This is disgusting. All of her sins are being transmitted to Jesus by touch. 
He's got to wash up. He's got to clean. He's got to tell her to stop. Not only that, but she's in my house. I've got to deep scrub this whole place. Because it was pristine before she came in here. That's how he thinks. Jesus, who does have supernatural knowledge, God has given him insights into people that are not visible to others. He understands what's going on inside of Simon. He knows what he's thinking. He knows all of this. And so he says to Simon, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. And that's where we come to our parable for this morning. Here's the story Jesus tells Simon. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. I, I don't, again, pure speculation from Josh Tate, but I, if I was like a director directing this scene in a movie, I would have Simon say this last line in that way that a person says when they know they're being trapped. <laughs> right? Right? Simon, I have something I want to say to you. Say it, teacher. Tells this story. And now Simon knows something is about to come. He doesn't like where this is going. And he probably would say, and I'm not a good actor, the one, I suppose, <laughs> for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, that is Jesus, you've judged rightly. And then, turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? And here I su suspect that Simon began to feel the vice closing on his spirit. <laughs> Simon, I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss of welcome, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Wow. What a gift. And now we see what this woman was so thankful for. Her sins, which were serious and numerous and well-known and which had separated her from God and marked her for damnation and made her the special object of social ridicule. They've been forgiven. Absolutely, 100% totally, the debt has been canceled. That pile of wrong has been lifted off of her. And she's a new creation. It's a new day. 
She's been shown incredible grace. And she is so overwhelmed with gratitude for God doing this thing for her that all that she's doing here in Simon's house is just the overflow of a heart that is filled with worship. Somehow this woman has come to grasp the life-saving truths of the gospel even before the disciples did. I have to, again, speculate that at some point she was listening to Jesus' teaching or had some prior encounter with Jesus where these things were made known to her. She became, she awoke to an awareness of what was on offer in Jesus, and she's embraced it. Her love for Jesus has caused her to risk the scorn of Simon and his friends just to be present with him. She's kissed him and washed his feet with her tears and hair. She's poured out costly perfume to demonstrate his worth to her. Then at verse 49, Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this? who even forgives sins. Which is in some ways like that time when Jesus turned to his disciples and said, who do the people say that I am? And they said, some of them say you're a prophet. Some some say this, some say that. And he says, but who do you say I am? And Peter then gives the correct answer. You might remember this passage from Scripture. It says, you're the Son of God. Some people are, have all kinds of ideas about Jesus. May, Simon even thinks maybe he's a prophet. But now at this point, he's forgiving sins, and they start to ask the right question, which is, who, who is this guy? Who is he? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And again, these are precious words that fall on the ears of this woman. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now, the main thing I want you to see in this text is this. Before being transformed and made new by Jesus, this woman was renowned for her sinful mode of living. And again, the Bible is discreet about the specific nature of her sins, but it seems most probable that she worked in that city as a prostitute. As such, she was accustomed to giving men what they wanted so that she could get what she needed. Men used her, and she used men from top to bottom. It was a selfish, exploitive, nasty business. There is no love or mutual concern or selflessness. She is accustomed to play-acting and pretending in order to get what she wanted. Her affections were negotiable. And so much religion today is exactly that, or it appears to be exactly that. People feel that they must do something for God in order to get something from Him that they need. They want salvation. They want forgiveness. They want an answer to their prayers. They want redemption. And so they think, I'll do some things for God. I'll roll up my sleeves. I'll get to work. I'll give him some works. I'll make a show of religiosity and rule-keeping in order to earn those things from him. But guys, that is prostitution. That is not Christianity. That is transactional. That is not relationship. 
Christianity is about a transformed heart, not play-acting. And Christianity is about a relationship, not a transaction. Romans 4, 4 through 5 says, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Anytime the Bible says that we're going to get our due, (laughs) we should cringe. I don't want from God what I deserve. I want grace. I want grace. I need grace. That's why the latter half of this is so precious to me. The one who does not work. In other words, the person who rests in the finished work of Jesus. Believing in him who justifies the ungodly, that's me. And if you'll hear it lovingly, that's you. Our faith can be counted as righteousness. You don't have the requisite righteousness, but your faith in the one who does can be counted as righteousness. But note how different are this woman's demonstrations of love and affection from Jesus from how she operated previously. First of all, this does not play out in a private room somewhere, hidden away in secret. There's nothing illicit going on here. She is unashamed. This is painfully and awkwardly public, and she, maybe it can't be said she doesn't care, but she doesn't care enough to not do it. She comes into Simon's house, and in an open and unashamed way, she demonstrates her worshipful love for Jesus for all the world to see. And unlike all those men before... Jesus is not ashamed to be seen with her. Come to me with all your sin cooties. (laughs) That's what he's saying to all of us this morning. Don't be ashamed of him. He is not ashamed of you. He wore you publicly on the cross. He wore it all. She's not ashamed of him. And he's not ashamed of her. This is a beautiful thing to see and how different is this from her previous mode of living. And she's not seeking to get something from Jesus. She's already been given the precious gift of faith. It says at the end, Jesus says to him, your faith, your faith has saved you. Always before when she got what she needed from people, she no longer had a use for them. And they had no longer had a use for her. It was transactional, and when it was done, they went their separate way and were glad for it. But she's come to see Jesus for the treasure that he is. She wants Jesus, not something apart from Jesus. That's why she sought him out. Jesus is what she needs, so she came to him here, even in this difficult place. And she's not trying to manipulate Jesus, and Jesus is not trying to exploit her. Somehow she's grasped the truth that Jesus loves her and is concerned for her and has the power to forgive her of her sins and reconcile her to the Father from whom she has been horribly estranged because of her sins. And she kisses Jesus, not in pretend passion, but with real tears, motivated by real love and affection. There is no play acting now. Her love is not a show. 
It's the honest overflow of a heart that has been captured. This is about a relationship. This is no temporary fleeting dalliance. This is as permanent and enduring as God's promises. And she receives nothing of material wealth from Jesus. In fact, she pours out what probably would have been her greatest earthly possession as an expression of worship to him. In verse 47, it says, Therefore I tell you, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much. Don't get tripped up on this verse. When it says that she was forgiven for she loved much, it's not saying that she earned forgiveness through these demonstrations of love. If that were true, if she was trying to earn God's favor through works, then she would just be turning another trick. She would be trying to, forgive, to get the forgiveness she needs from Jesus by giving him something he wants. And that's not fair to this woman. That's not what was going on. The four in verse 47 is not describing the cause or basis of her forgiveness, but the evidence of it. Sometimes four describes the cause of something, like in the sentence, the boat sank for it struck an iceberg, right? In that instance, the word for describes the cause of the event. But not so in this sentence. The boat sank, for I saw it with my own two eyes. The boat didn't sink because you were watching it with your eyes. With your, the for there describes the evidence that proves the event has actually happened. And that's what's being described by Jesus when he says, Her sins are forgiven, for she loved much. Not... Her sins are forgiven because she loved much. Her sins are forgiven, and we can see that because of the change that it has worked in her. She now loves. That's the evidence of the thing that has happened. The evidence that she's been forgiven and made new is her love and gratitude for Jesus. Her demonstrations of love are not the reason that the debt was canceled. It's the other way around. The love results from the canceled debt. She loves Jesus because he is a wonderful debt-canceling God. The Bible never presents salvation as coming to a person because of their works, but only by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Uh, sometimes I worry that preaching that point gets tedious. <laughs> like we've heard that a million times. But I think the human heart is always being drawn away from that central truth, that which is most needed, which is simply this. You cannot earn from Jesus what's needed. It is a gift. And to the one who works, his wages will not be counted as a gift, but as his due. I don't want any of us in this room to get what we deserve. And getting a gift from Jesus is receiving it as a gift. And that's what's happening here. Her sins are forgiven, and the proof of that is that she loves. But what about Simon? I think when people read this story, they tend to see themselves in either the woman or Simon. Uh, people who have a rough background... Lots of regrets, lots of sin, lots of shame, wasted years. They walk around with private, 
hidden places in their heart that are wounded and guilty. They see themselves in this woman. And they understand something of her love for this wonderful debt-canceling Jesus. But others see themselves more in Simon. They aren't perfect, they know that, but they have tried their earnest best over the span of their years to live a life of integrity. Their sins are not as serious, or maybe not as well known, (laughs) nor are they as numerous as other people's. They have a good reputation, and for the most part, it's deserved. Jesus himself affirms the truth that some people owe 50 denarii and others 500. Some sin is worse, and some sin more often. So what about Simon? Remember when Jesus told Simon the story, he said, one owed, 50, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. When they could not pay. Neither one could pay the debt. If you can't pay a debt, it doesn't matter how much you owe. If you're broke, you're broke. If the bill comes and it's a million dollars or a thousand dollars and in your bank account you have 49 cents, you're in trouble regardless. In that sense, there is no difference between owing a little and owing a lot. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The truth so slowly begins to seep in. Simon, you're no different from this woman. You're in debt to God and you can't pay. You might owe 50 denarii compared to her 500, but you can't even begin to scratch together that much. Some owe more, some less, but none of us can pay even a penny of what we owe. And here's the gospel message. Here's what Jesus is saying to Simon and maybe to you this morning. God is willing to forgive all debtors equally. He's the God of the shallows and the deep. He's the God who can pay billions in debt, and if you just owe 100000 he stands ready to pay it all. God is willing to forgive all debtors equally. Jesus paid their debt on the cross, the people who owe a lot and the people who owe a little. Jesus died for them all. He's willing to cancel the debts of all who put their trust in him for their salvation. But you need to know this. (laughs) You're not saved because you sin less than someone else. God is not grading on a scale. No one will pass through the pearly gates because they were less dirty than someone else. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I am looking out on a room full of people who either are indebted or were indebted to God. If you're a believer today, you're no longer in debt. Jesus paid it all. 
If you have not yet put your trust in Jesus for salvation, you are walking around under a debt. And there is no telling when that debt will be called in. Jesus could return before this service is over. And that would draw to a close these days of decision. You could die on the ride home. I don't know when this debt will be called in, but if you're still carrying it around, I'm begging you, divest yourself of it. Don't operate under the suicidal delusion that because you owe 50 and other people owe 500, that that will qualify you to enter into God's favor. It will not. And I say that not because God is hard-hearted, not the very opposite. He's made provision for your debt to be forgiven. It's in front of you, the pardon, if you would just pick it up. The offer is on the table. Will you put your trust in Jesus alone for salvation? Will you let him pay the debt? Or, in pride, will you continue on? Now to the one who works, the one who tries to earn through works the favor of God, his wages will not be counted as a gift, but as his due. You're going to get what you deserve. And we're told in the Bible that the wages of sin, what we've earned, is death. God does not want to give you that, but he is a respecter of decisions. So there's a decision before Simon. There's the decision before us at the end of this parable. <laughs> we all have a debt. Jesus has made provision for the payment of that debt. He is a respecter of decisions. Will you allow him to pay the debt, and will you become like this woman, overwhelmed with worship, with love and affection for this debt-canceling God? Will you join us as a worshiper? Jesus had systematically exposed the shabby treatment he'd received. You gave me no water. You gave me no kiss. You didn't offer me olive oil, but she's anointed my feet with expensive oils. You kept me at arm's length, but she was not ashamed of me. You didn't even bother to show me minimal courtesy, but she's lavished her love on me. You invited me into your home, sure, but you didn't accept me here, and yet she risked your despising of her to come and be with me here in this setting. You know religion, you know the temple, you know the sacrifices and the law, but she knows none of that. But nevertheless, you somehow miss the whole point, Simon, and she gets it. What was Simon's problem? He thought he was better than her. She's a 500 denarii kind of human being. Simon said, she's a sinner. And by implication in his thinking, he was saying, I am not. And Jesus says, no, she's not a sinner. She was a sinner. <laughs> I took all that sin. 
It's you who remain in your sins, Simon. God has changed the tenses in her life. You will have gratitude and love in exact proportion with your sense of your own sinfulness. If you think this morning that you've been greatly forgiven, you will greatly love God. If you think you have only been forgiven a little, you will only love God a little. Simon's problem was not that he couldn't see the woman, it was that he couldn't yet see Jesus or himself. Simon's problem was that he had not yet come to understand himself as he was, which is a sinner who's desperately in need of a Savior. Simon thought in his heart of hearts, I owe this man Jesus nothing. And here's the abiding truth from this story. Your love for the Lord is directly related to your estimate of how greatly you've sinned and how much he's forgiven you. Need is the fuel of worship. You cannot worship Jesus this morning if you feel no particular need for him. Simon felt no need for Jesus. He felt curiosity. He had questions. This woman desperately needs what he was offering, and it shows up in the way she acts. We're all like this woman, so guilty we could never pay the debt we owe. Simon is like this woman. <laughs> That's the whole problem. He doesn't yet see himself as being like her. Now we've been forgiven more than our minds can comprehend. And there's a little bit of Simon in many of us. And as long as that's true, we'll have difficult time giving thanks to God in a way that honors him. We're going to close out our time this morning by taking communion together. In fact, I'll invite the deacons to come forward. This table is a graphic reminder and representation of our forgiveness in Jesus. What has made us right and reconciled to the Father is not our relative goodness. It's the fact that Jesus has done for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. The sum total of our hope before the Father is the broken body and the spilled blood of Jesus. We have nothing else. Uh, to say. <laughs> I have nothing to brag about. You don't either. I think sometimes people are reluctant to come into a new church and sit down among us because they have this idea that we're all a bunch of Simons who go around affirming one another that we're the good ones and the unwashed, dirty barbarians are at the gates out there or something like that. Not so. At least let it not be so among us. I'm not saying that doesn't exist some places. We strive here to be a people who understand the gospel and live the gospel. 